Hey everyone, welcome back to Everything I Learned in Theater School. Uh, this is episode three. Um, and today uh, I want to just get into, again, one of the early lessons from Acting One class, my first semester in undergrad. Um, basically, I think maybe maybe did we have to grab a sheet of paper and a pencil or something? Um but yeah, basically everyone in my class was asked to yeah, grab something to write on, something to write with, and to write down what they thought was the definition of acting. Um, which is, you know, uh, probably a good idea, a useful exercise. You've just rolled up to uh, a class called Acting One, right? Um, everyone there wants to learn to act or learn to act better. Um, and so to then task a bunch of mostly 18 year olds with the idea of defining what it is they're actually doing is, uh, seems like a valid, useful, um, exercise. Uh, and so before I get into it any further, I just want to sort of reiterate, um, something I mentioned, uh, in, in one of the earlier episodes, um, just that, Again, there are so many schools of thought, so many different techniques, so many practices in this, you know, art form that's, you know, more than likely over 2,500 years old. Um, and certainly the, the roots of it go much, much, much further back than that. So, you know, to think that there is one definition of acting, um, you know, supreme above all else is is really uh, silly and and ridiculous, um, and so I just want to acknowledge that right now before I get into um, this story about myself and my peers trying to define uh, what we thought acting was, because there is a we we do come away with a sort of um definition as it applies to us and what we were trying to do or the kind of acting that we were trying to um you know to achieve to um you know be able to do uh well and uh, repeatedly um so yes there are many different kinds of acting many schools of thought many techniques um many styles many ways of appealing to an audience, right? But in this moment, we were talking about sort of a, a particular thing. Um, and it's a muddy thing. Um, but I, yeah, I just sort of want to lay out if the idea of what you're um, sort of expected to understand about acting if you're trying to go to theater school. And that's, you know, whether you're going to theater school for theater or for some other discipline like design or production, um, uh, who knows, uh, marketing, like whatever the thing is, um, you will have to take an acting class at some point. Uh, and, you know, all the work that you are doing in whatever discipline you're in is going to support an art form that is represented by actors, essentially. That all the people coming to see, you know, 
your work or the work that you supported, basically what they know they're going to see is a bunch of acting. And they know that there will also be costumes and there will also be sets, you know, and there will also be all the other sort of trappings of of theater that audiences have come to expect and that people have come to rely on to, you know, to achieve uh, an audiovisual, you know, storytelling. But um, at the end of the day, people are, that that's the sort of one kind of, the one element of theater that no one's going to get away from is the acting. Um, and I, again, I don't, <laughs> I don't say that to um, make it seem more important than any other or make actors certainly not seem, you know, more important than any other uh, contributor to creating theater. Uh, absolutely not. Um, but yeah, because it is sort of the face of it, it's that, that one thing that you can't really escape um, if you're going to theater school. Uh, maybe you only ever have to take one class uh, if it's not your thing, uh, but you will have to take it. Whereas I, as an actor, you know, I had to take, you know, one design class. You know, I, I learned about um, how to make and how to build stuff, but I didn't have to learn any of the theory um, you know, except for one kind of design. You know, I chose lighting design um, because, uh, not because I was really interested in it, but because um, somehow it had, it was maybe a speaking intensive uh, course. It had like a speaking intensive marker on it and I had, I needed one of those requirements to fulfill my degree. Um, so, that knocked out my design requirement and my speaking intensive. So that's the one I took. Um, looking backward at that moment, uh, if I could have figured a different way out, I 100% would have elected to take set design um, just based on my my experiences since then um, and what I'm, what I'm really drawn to. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how that, shook out um but everyone whether they are yeah they want to be a designer or um a builder a stitcher a draper you know a makeup artist whatever the thing is they've got to take at least one acting class um i mean again that's just that was the experience at my school so maybe there are other schools where that's not a requirement um but yeah so there was all of us in this little studio, uh, the room number was 109. Yeah, uh, in 109, I remember it being sort of a chilly little studio. Um, but I wound up having tons of classes in there over the years. And um, yeah, so we were all there in our um, movement clothes, uh, in our bare feet. Um, by the way, that's if. If that's not already known to you, um, that's pretty common. That when you walk into an acting studio, there's a good chance that you will be asked to take off your shoes. Um, and there's a good chance that you'll be asked to wear clothes that you can move really easily in. Uh, there's also a good chance that you'll need to wear uh, clothing that is all black. Um, 
And there's lots of reasons for all that stuff that, that we'll get into later. Um, in this environment, we didn't have to wear black, but we did have to wear clothes that we could move in, and we did go barefoot. Um, so there we all were with our cold, bare feet, uh, sitting on the floor in the studio with pens and paper in front of us. And then we were asked, what is acting? Write it down. Um, I have no idea what I thought acting was. I imagine my answer probably involved something like playing a character or mm, something about mm, maybe something about emotions, uh, maybe something about storytelling. But yeah, I, I really couldn't tell you. All I know is that it was not what we sort of came away learning as a as a new definition of acting. Um, uh, yeah, again, like I've said before, I realized early on that I knew nothing uh, about what acting actually was. Um, and I, I realized I didn't really know how to do it. So it's not surprising to me that I didn't have a... A grapple on, uh, a grasp. Sorry, a grasp of what acting was. Um, so, yeah, I remember. Yeah, writing that down, and I think we all went around the room and shared what we thought it was, and there was a fair amount of overlap for sure. Um, but what we ultimately came away with what we were then asked to write down um, as sort of our guiding definition right i think I think our teacher was was good and responsible enough to also acknowledge like there is not a correct answer, but acting as I'm teaching it to you can be defined as this, and again, not sure if I know the exact wording. But it was something to the effect of truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances. Easy as that, right? I I imagine that whatever definition I wrote down had many, many more words than that. Um, and that's the thing, if you... If you're not 100% sure of what something is um, or, yeah, don't know exactly what you mean to say, it's very easy to say a lot more than you need to say. But if you're very comfortable with something, if you're very familiar with something, it becomes much more easy to talk about it or explain it in many fewer words. So truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances or maybe it was truthful behavior in an imaginary set of circumstances, right? Either way, same idea. Um, but then that sort of that sort of asks a whole other question: this idea of what is truthful behavior, right? Um, it, it, you know, that thing of you go to look up a word in the dictionary and the definition of that word has another word that you don't know and then you have to look that up. Uh, obviously, 
I felt I knew what truthful was, you know, what that meant at the time. Um, but it's a, it's a kind of muddy word that could go in different directions. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. Um, but what I want to sort of address right now, uh, you know, because I've mentioned different schools of thought and all that, um, but yeah, when I was in theater school, uh, we were basically still learning from the Stanislavski method. Um, some of you, a lot of you, I'm sure, will recognize that name. Um, Stanislavski, Konstantin Stanislavski, right? Um, I am not an expert on Stanislavski. So if I, um, if I misspeak here or what I say is not 100% accurate, I'm sorry, uh, I'll do my best. If you, you know, if you feel like I need to be fact-checked, feel free to write me at theaterschoolpod at gmail.com. Let me know about whatever errors I made in this. Um, but yeah, that's, that's still the most common sort of um, method, system, technique, training model uh, that's used at least in American universities. That's really all that I can speak to. Um, but in American theater schools, people are still basing most of their work on the Stanislavski method. Um, yeah, and just a, a wee bit of background, if you're not already familiar. Um, Stanislavski was an actor and later a director um, at the uh, the Moscow Art Theater, Moscow, Moscow, Moscow. I think it's Moscow, but I always grew up saying Moscow. So let's say the Moscow Art Theater. Um, you know, uh, different places, I'm sure, but that's where he most famously worked for a very long time. Um, and he wrote a really cool book called An Actor Prepares. Um, and in it, he talks about this idea uh, of the magic if, right? Um, and the magic if is is basically a much cooler and even more succinct way of describing truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances, right? Um, as I understand it, we're talking about the magic if is is saying, um, how would you behave if blank, right? If X were true, right? So um, if, you know, if you were running late for a meeting um, and you were walking down a hall but you knew that you you couldn't walk faster than a certain speed for for some reason if all those things were true how would you walk right what would your behavior be like right um if if i'm going to sort of paint a uh audio picture here um i'm kind of imagining a bit of power walking right so, you know, where that thing where you're going as fast as you can, never lifting both feet off the ground at the same time, 
right? Because when you do that, then you start running. Um, so you're power walking. So you've got this weird thing where it seems like you're trying to go really fast almost without bending your legs at the knee. Um, and maybe you are looking quite strained uh, as you're doing it. Um, and it's a little bit uncomfortable in your legs and it's sort of starting to burn some lactic acid. Um, and that's sort of what your, your physical behavior might, you know, might be like at the time. Um, but let's take another example, uh, that's, you know, possibly even more applicable to acting. Um, uh, if you've been pulled over for speeding, you know, and you're, you've been driving your car a little bit too fast, you've been pulled over, uh, and let's say it's your first time ever being pulled over for anything. If that is the case, how are you going to speak to the the officer who has pulled you over? Right? And then you can contrast that with, um, and now let's say it's your fourth time being pulled over. You have a bit of a, a record. Um now, if it's your fourth time being pulled over and you have a bit of a record, how are you going to speak to that officer, right? One could imagine that your behavior would be different in one circumstance versus the other circumstance, right? So if you were performing in a play, that play, you know, um, contains imaginary circumstances, even if that play is based on real events that actually happened, those events are not actually happening in that moment, right? You're doing a play, which makes those circumstances imaginary, right? So even though they really happened at the time, we are imagining that they are happening in front of us in this theater, right? So that makes them imaginary. Are you with me? Great. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the trick. That's the magic of it, right? There's really... <laughs> it sounds so simple. Oh, you just imagine a circumstance. And then you imagine how you would feel about it and how that would make you respond. Or, to be even more specific, you imagine a circumstance and then you imagine, what am I going to do about that, right? Um, because that's something that you can really actually do. And I'll get into why that might be more useful than thinking about, well, how do I feel about that? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a big one for me. And again, that, that can easily divide people and, you know, break people into schools of thought. Um, and, and it has, and it does, and it will get people into heated debates and arguments. Um, and that's fantastic. People should have those arguments. Um, and hopefully, each person in any of those arguments 
can see and appreciate um, the other person's point of view, the other person's or other side's point of view. Um, Because at the end of the day, in terms of how to act, there's what works for you and there's what works for me and maybe they're the same and maybe they're different. But if the audience can't tell the difference, then who really cares? So you can go about doing your thing and I'll go about doing my thing. Maybe I'll try your thing out sometime. Maybe you'll try mine out sometime. But it doesn't matter if it's all the same when it's presented to the audience. The only thing about that that matters is whether you feel that your acting is genuine or authentic, right? If you feel like it's not or you don't feel authentic or genuine when you are acting, then that's an issue and that's something to look look into and sort of come to terms with and, and find a way to... Um, to adjust but if you feel good when you're doing it and your audience is responding in a way that is positive if your audience is being moved you know um in in some way if they're having thoughts or having feelings that that they weren't having before your performance began then that's fantastic um but anyway, sort of getting back to the magic if and the imaginary circumstances and all that, um, yeah, that's that's maybe hard to say. In that book, An Actor Prepares, Stanislavski lays out a number of really sort of important um, important aspects of actor training. Things that an actor needs to be able to understand and to do, right? Things they need to be able to execute. Um, And he didn't necessarily invent any of these things, but based on his observations of actors that he found really compelling, he sort of figured out... Um, uh, you know, almost sort of, it's a very hip word to use these days, but reverse engineered um, how to achieve that, right? Okay, I, I'm starting with something that I witnessed that I thought was really fantastic. Now let me sort of work that backwards until I figure out my starting point and then I can work my way forward and see if I get to that kind of a performance. Um, yeah, so there was no, there's no rule that said, do these things and then you will be a good actor. It's a big slog of a process where you do those things and hopefully your performance will be interesting and compelling. Um, hopefully it will, it will move someone, right? Not that everything that every actor does has to you know, break a heart in the audience. But hopefully you're contributing positively to 
the audience's experience. I think, I, I hope whenever I get on stage that I am contributing in that way. Um, cause it's not everyone's moment to shine all the time. Um, you know, what, if, if someone is clearly meant to be the focus of a scene, the best thing that you can do is help the audience understand that they need to focus on that person. All right. Yeah, so I'll get more into sort of Stanislavski's other, um, the the big training things that um, that actors need to learn to do, be able to do, um, and be able to understand. I'll get into more of that later, but right now we're focusing on those imaginary circumstances and the truthful behavior that you need to execute under those imaginary circumstances, Right? when the magic if is at play. So, as I alluded to before, that word truthful is loaded and confusing and a little bit ambiguous. Um, And it brings up another big question. Is true the same as real? My answer is maybe, but for the purposes of helping people understand how to act, I like to differentiate them. Um, This is something that I learned when training to become an actor, but that I have since sort of relearned and my understanding of it has sharpened I think um, since becoming a teacher and figuring out how to explain this to people Um, and I'm not an expert at it and I still I think I do a solid job and I'm articulate and careful about it and I still get responses in papers and on tests and things like that where people clearly don't understand that there is a difference or that the difference is worth making. Great. All right. So what do I mean when I say truthful? What do I mean when I say real? I think that... I I kind of think that real has much less place in theater than truth. And this can be very confusing because a lot of people associate acting with lying, right? Uh chances are decent that you've you've heard that comparison being drawn. Um there are even you know playwrights who's kind of I don't know, like to poke the bear a little bit and 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 put it out there to audiences. Write things for actors to say where they're in this kind of meta state, like talking to the audience, and just so you know, I'm an actor and I'm aware that I'm an actor and I'm talking to you about acting. And isn't it interesting how acting is kind of lying? But would you really know it if I'm a really good actor? You know, that, that kind of thing. Um that's cool. It's not 
really my taste um usually i get why people associate acting with with lying um and a lot of people when they're lying um are maybe employing certain techniques that actors also use i think that you know both of those things can be true um but yeah i think that that what's real is what really happens in your life right the events of your life outside of the world of theater and acting are are real events right and the way that you respond your your behavior in real circumstances is real behavior um but i think that it's possible to have truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances right so if you have imaginary circumstances right if you are if you are playing a king right that's that's part of your imaginary circumstances your behavior in playing a king is not real right because you don't actually have the experience of being a king unless you're a king and you're listening to this podcast in which case that's kind of cool drop me a line but if yeah you because you don't have the real experience of being a king you can't exhibit real behavior the best that you can do is exhibit what i would call truthful behavior okay um which is i mean you can kind of create a definition just based on imaginary circumstances uh it, it's almost like what is truthful behavior it's responding in a way that that corresponds to the circumstances right in the way that a person would in this circumstance right and just to be clear even saying that could be incredibly messy because how would a person respond well one person would respond one way another person would respond a different way right um luckily a, being a king is not your only imaginary circumstance right so you have many many sort of details that create your circumstances and the more detailed you get the more specific you get the more truthful your behavior becomes right because your behavior is is grounded in all of these circumstances and you're you imagining that all of these circumstances are really happening or are really at play all right um yeah but it's not uh, it's it's so it's so like kind of frustrating to define because it's like i ha i have to use these same words over and over again and you either kind of can get on board that there's a distinction or you you can't you have a hard time with that and if you have a hard time with that then me saying truthful versus real is it's kind of yeah it might be a little bit dicey um <laughs> but yeah if you can just imagine that 
reality is reality, but that even in fantasy there can be truth, then I think that's... then, Then I think you can work with this. And if you can't, it will be it will be difficult. Um, so if you feel like you, you can't make that distinction, then I feel like the best thing that you can do if you're going to be an actor, if you're going to try and do this kind of acting, um, is to just acknowledge, I have a hard time making this distinction. Okay? Or acknowledge... I'm told that there's this distinction. I don't understand it, but I'm willing to believe that it's there, right? And I think if you just open yourself up to that, then you have a better chance of of eventually sort of separating those two things and understanding, oh, I I get it, eventually, okay? Um, When you're learning to become an actor or to do the things that actors often need to do. No one's expecting you to understand it all straight away or get it all, quote, right uh, straight away, right? It's a big, long process. Um, And the best thing that you can do is just develop, you know, some level of humility And accept that you're not going to know all the things all the time. And if you can become comfortable saying, I don't know, then that is fantastic. It's even better if you can say truthfully, I have thought about it, I have looked into it, I have, you know, whatever, I have researched it thoroughly, and I, I still just don't know, right? Then that helps your teacher, your director, your fellow actors, whomever, understand you're putting in the work and your I don't know is genuine and it's not out of laziness, right? Um, or, you know, if you have other valid reasons that you, you just can't figure out the answer to something, then then that's great too. Um, And then you can admit, I don't know. So, truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances. What is truth? What is reality? Or what is truthful? What is real? And then, that, that brings up this whole this whole other distinction, right? And this is not something that we talk about early on in Acting One. But because we're sort of already on the topic, um, I, think it's, I think it's worth having a little chat about uh, because it's a point of... Um, it's a big point of misconception, both outside of the world of theater in terms of of people who, you know, maybe experience theater or theater-adjacent arts like film and television. Um, 
or people who are inside of theater, who are practitioners on some level, right? There's still huge misconceptions about this. And truth be told, I was, I, I misunderstood this distinction for a very long time. Um, okay. And it's, it's one of those things that it, it's almost just because the, the definitions are not clear or because people used a word that feels broad to define something very specific. Um, and, the, you know, the best example outside of theater that I can give is modern art, right? You talk about, if, if someone talks about modern art, um, you might not think they're talking about what they're talking about, right? So um, someone just randomly off the street says, I'm going to go see some modern art. They're probably talking about something very different from an art historian, right? Talking about modern art, right? So just to, just to clarify what I'm talking about at all right now is that modernism in visual art is a much more specific thing than it sounds like. And it encompasses a certain period of time and certain styles and certain artists, right? That we can, you know, look at and look at their work and say, these are, these are modern artists. And that modern period has passed, which is ironic because we tend to think that anything that is new and innovative is modern, right? Um, and I suppose the word contemporary has kind of replaced uh, modern to just mean the, you know, the new recent thing, right? And that's tricky because contemporary also has other definitions that, you know, if we, if we kind of dig into, things become very confusing. Um, but yeah, so in the same way that modern means something very specific, even though it sounds like it could apply to tons and tons of, of things, um, in that same way that visual art has that and dance also has has that has a, a modern period and modern style. Um, in theater, we have realism. Okay, and this is you know what I was talking about between truthfulness and reality, or truth, true and real. Right? What's the difference? Um, well, we have this thing called realism, and realism exists in other art forms as well, especially literature. Uh, but in theater, <laughs> and, and and just to be clear, I teach this stuff, but it still sort of like escapes me, and and the kind of minutia of the definition can be um, a, a little hard to to grapple with sometimes. But essentially. Realism refers to 
the the way that playwrights wanted to present the world on stage um the way that they wanted to and not and not physically right but the subject matter that they wanted to share with an audience that was at the time too mm, gritty too common too real you know i'm i'm like shaking my head trying to figure out a better way of saying it but it was just too real for people people had an expectation that when they went to the theater they were going to see a play and it was going to tell a story and that story would be far removed enough from their own lives from their own circumstances that they could escape into it in some way they could escape their own daily lives and just exist in the world of this story for a while. And I think that's a totally reasonable, you know, expectation to have. Um, until, you know, at some point in the 1800s, some playwrights start thinking, well, what if we just told these stories of, of things that are actually happening right now? Um, what if we reflected what's actually happening in society onto the stage in a way that people are not being exposed to right now. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Um, you know, and so that's that's the, the basis of realism in theater. Um, so it's like, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's more about someone saying like yeah no I, I really appreciate this person because they're they're real you know they're not like a fake person they're really real it's sort of like that like oh this story is real it's not you know sure maybe it's completely fictional but it is inspired by the realities of you know of everyday life in in the the current society right um and again with realism there's like a million different subgenres right there's you know contemporary realism and there's magical realism there's heightened realism um and you know we can we can get into more of that stuff later but for right now the the basic idea is realism is about the content, right? When realism started to become a thing in terms of the content, the style of acting that accompanied it, ugh, let's try that again, that accompanied it, bingo, um, and subsequently the style of design that supported that performance felt much more real and much more like what existed in the real world. So because people are, I think, much more inclined to remember and relate to things that they can see and hear, the common tendency is to think of realism in terms of realistic acting 
and realistic design. Okay? And if you want to think about it like that, and if that's what how you want to define realism, then go for it. Cool beans. But that's just that's just not actually what realism is. And so if you're getting into a discussion with someone about realism, or if you are taking a class that has to do with theatrical realism, um, and someone asks you, you, a, you know, a question about it, if you lead off with design and, you know, performance, you are probably going down, you're, you're sort of leading yourself down the wrong path, right? Or leading yourself toward confusion. Um, so I just think it's important to distinguish those two things, right? The design and the performance that we think of as being realistic and the content, right, of the sort of real-world issues, the things that at the time nobody wanted to put on stage um, except for this this small and growing number of of playwrights um, yeah so that's I feel like there's probably a, a better more effective way of describing it um, but yeah what I do is I sort of talk about realism and like realist playwriting and I distinguish realist from realistic uh, which sounds super pedantic um, but it's it's sort of what I've got to to go on that's the tool that I have in my belt um, to be able to distinguish those two things right and just as a little aside um, because I've I've talked about realism in terms of, oh, these are the things that people didn't want to put on stage. Um, so then that sort of opens up the question of, well, then how did they get on stage? Okay? Um, you know, if, like, realism is the sort of, mm, well, I, I can't say this anymore because people people want to escape a little bit more these days, I, I think. Um but for a long time, at least, realism is the sort of, you know, genre du jour, right? It's like, this is what people expect to see when they go see a play. Um, you know, even in Shakespeare, like, people expect to see realistic acting and realistic design a lot of the times. Um and thankfully, a lot of the times that's not what they will get. Um, but it's the sort of the, the acting style and the design style that that come with that came with realism um, are just sort of expected. We expect to see this all the time. Uh, so it's funny, I think, to look back uh, 150 years after the advent of realism and think wait 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 the whole point of realism was that it wasn't getting any play on stage like these kinds of stories these characters this sort of content so how do we even know about it how did it make its way on stage to the point that now 
we were reading about it in textbooks and listening to podcasts about it and all that. Um, and the the big thing, the the big thing, as far as I understand it, that allowed these plays to show up was the independent theater model. All right, um, theater like the the circumstances surrounding how theater got produced was you know often different from one country to another there were crazy laws about licensing and you know how many professional theaters could exist in in one particular place and you know all that and then who funded it was it the crown was it you know uh, independent, you know, wealthy patrons, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, but basically in the same way that Broadway and, you know, like the West End in London and, and so many, um, commercial theater districts, uh, operate is that there are investors, right? People who are going to, um, put in money, um, often a lot of money and so they want to make sure before the show ever goes up um, that their investment is going to yield a good return right so they have a lot of input and a lot of influence um, over what gets produced and so if there's something subversive or weird or gross or quirky or something um, that gets brought to them if they don't think it's going to do well financially, they're going to shoot it down. Um, and that includes a lot of realism. So what do you do? Well, well I, guess, I guess you need to find a different model. You need to find a different way of getting theater on stage where the people paying the money don't have so much influence, right? And how do you do that? You create... A subscription, right? You say, look, here's the deal. We want to put whatever we want to put on stage. And instead of relying on a few big-time investors pulling the strings, we're going to invite anyone who wants to, basically, you know, with some obvious, like, exceptions that people who are, you know, marginalized in society and all that like we we know that happens um but anyone who's allowed to come see theater in public um you are now invited to become a subscriber to our little independent theater and by subscribing you get certain benefits you get a ticket to every play you know um and you maybe get to uh make suggestions for us and other perks I'm sure but we get to choose what plays we're going to do and when you give us money you are you are signing on the dotted line that you're okay with that right um and people were into that and they were up for it and so once they started to do that the um you know the the producers of the theater the people that chose the plays and all that were free to choose whatever plays they wanted to um and because they 
had a subscription model. They were essentially private clubs. Um, they weren't using any government money or anything. So government censors didn't, you know, didn't really have uh, a way to censor them. The only exceptions to that were if something was like literally illegal, you know, if something was, you know, would have been illegal to do outside of the theater um, just as well as inside, then you couldn't do that, obviously. Or you could, but you risk, you know, being penalized. But anyway, that's how realism made its way onto stage um, and made its way into the awareness of audiences and, you know, eventually had years and years and generations and evolutions um, and made its way into textbooks so that we are studying this this art form from 150 years ago um, and we are talking about it on this podcast. Um, and... Yeah, that's that's why yeah, that's that's why we're talking about this. That's how it came to be is through independent theaters. Um and you know, independent theater um survives like that that model still exists. And you know, that was the the late 1800s when all that was happening. Um but still it it still pops up in America, right? Um, in the middle 20th century. Ah, we want to, you know, Broadway, like I was saying, ah, we want to produce these these cool plays. Um, but Broadway investors are not into it. So what do we do? We create a subscription model. Uh, and these theaters, we're going to call them off-Broadway theaters. Chances are pretty good you've heard the phrase off-Broadway if you know anything about theater in America or are at all familiar with theater in America, um, you might have heard the term off-Broadway. So that's that's what off-Broadway was once upon a time, was a way to get around censorship and investors poo-pooing on, you know, plays that were potentially interesting, but that they thought would not be, you know, commercially viable. Um, and then when, you know... Uh, when off-Broadway became a little bit too commercial for some people, then off-off-Broadway became a thing. Um, and that is like, it's a really cool thing. And granted, not every off-off-Broadway production is great. Not every off-Broadway production is great. Not every Broadway production is great. It's all a big, hot mess and sometimes it's really fantastic, and sometimes that makes it all worth it. Um, tons of actors, myself included, have cut their teeth on, you know, a diet of off-off-Broadway shows, uh, have, you know, have kept themselves in practice, have learned more about their craft, have been exposed to you know, more different and unique playwrights and directing styles and, you know, all kinds of cool stuff out there because people along the way pushed for, 
okay, great, but we want to do this, and we can't do it in this circumstance, so we've got to create something new. And now we've got to create something newer. Um, and I'm so, like, the first play I did in New York was absolutely wretched. And it was in an off-off-Broadway, it was an off-off-Broadway company in an off-off-Broadway um, theater venue. Um, and it was terrible. But the experience was incredibly valuable to me for a number of reasons, which I'm sure I'll talk about later down the track. Um, but there you go. What is acting? It is truthful behavior under imaginary circumstances. What is truthful? What is true in theater? Oh, it's, it's anything that would happen under imaginary circumstances, right? And it's, it's doing justice to what would happen under imaginary circumstances. Well, what's real? Oh, um, real is what happens in your real life. Well, what's realism? Oh, it's plays based on what could happen in your real life. And how did we get realism? Through independent theaters. Okay. I hope it didn't sound like I was trying to make that, <laughs> that sort of um, dotted line sound profound. I was really just actually trying to like wrap it up and, and make sense of it and make sure that I kind of understood how I got from the first point to the last point. Because uh, I, I was not expecting to talk about independent theaters, but it seemed useful and, and important. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's just how I got from acting one class in North Carolina to off-off-Broadway theater in New York. Um, which for me happened in the span of, you know, about four years. So that's cool. Um Great, 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 great. Well, I think that's all I have to talk about this week. Um, if you have any questions about any of that, about theater in general, things you've heard about, um, things you've been taught, things you just wonder based on your experiences, things you've yeah seen or heard while watching theater, I am so open to having a chat about that. Um, to answering your question. Um, so yeah, send me an email, uh, theater school pod, uh, I should say T H E A T E R school pod at gmail.com. Oh boy. Okay. All right. One more thing. So in that email address, I spell theater T H E A T E R, right? But Theater is also spelled T-H-E-A-T-R-E. What is the deal with that? What is the big difference? If you're American, that's a valid question for you. If you're not American, you maybe really don't care because you just probably spell it the one way anyway. Um, so why do Americans spell it two different ways? And if you're Canadian and you also spell it two different ways, sorry. Um, I wasn't aware. Um, 
but I assume the whole English and French thing, you would probably spell it in that kind of Franco way. Um, but anyway, yeah. So as you might know, uh, English owes about half of itself to the French influence from the, what was that, the ninth and 10th centuries, right? When the Normans came in and, you know, Francified everything. Um, so yeah, like ton, like most of the Latin influence in English is from the French, right? Which is why in British English, there are, yeah, spellings of things like theater and center, where even though we say er, it's it's R-E, right? Which we would think of as re or re or something like that. So anyway, what? Okay, so that's in there. That gets in there. That's fine. Um, And it, it sticks around. But then in America, at some point, um, when Webster's Dictionary is being compiled, uh, Webster's like, oh, hang on, why do we, why do we need to spell these words in that weird French way when we don't really say them in that way? Yeah, why, what's up with all the U's between the O and the R and like color and neighbor and all that? What a, could we just get rid of some of that? Could could we? I think, yeah, let's let's do that. All right, well, we're going to publish this big book full of words and what they mean, and this is a pretty new country. I think we could get away with just, like, making some changes, right? Let's do it. So basically, you know, like center and theater get changed to E-R instead of R-E. And that's a pretty popular dictionary, so people learning to spell you know, often use that as a reference. Um, so the the ER spelling makes its way in there. But the RE never really goes away, right? Um, I think in the word center, it's a pretty safe bet. Like if you're writing something and you're talking about a center or the center of something, you're going to spell it in the American way. And the only exceptions are if it's like a place name, like... I don't know, like a, a shopping centre that wants to make itself seem fancy, you know, so it spells it in the French Anglo way. Um, but I think that is, that's probably similarly why the RE uh, theater spelling still persists. Um, there is a, There are a lot of theories that get kicked around about like, oh, well, uh, you know, ER refers to movie theater, and RE is like theater, like the, for live theater. Or you might hear something like um, theater with an ER uh, refers to the building, whereas theater with an RE refers to the art form, right? Which is like perfect because it's just, it sounds so hoity-toity um, and it makes art this stupid, inaccessible, um, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of thing. Um, which, gosh, I, I wish it wasn't. I, I wish more people felt like they had access to art, um, especially, you know, theater, uh, for my part. Um, but yeah, it's none of that. It's just like someone wanted to spell it differently in their dictionary. Um, that caught on. It was pretty popular, but it wasn't universal. Um, and so now 
we're kind of stuck with this this split. And for me, it's all acceptable. If you read the description of this podcast, I spell it both different ways because I don't care because I think it's, I don't know, I think it's stupid to think of one of them as right. I think it's kind of cool that we have both. Um, and if if you write to me and you spell it one way, great. If you spell it the other, great. If you spell it both ways in the same paragraph, fantastic. I don't care. Um, yeah, and I, I hope that fewer and fewer people care or spread silly rumors about why it is one thing or the other. Um, that would be great if that could kind of uh, go away a little bit. But you know, there's so many things that sort of persist like that. Um, these urban legends and um, things that they heard someone's big brother say once upon a time. Um, but yeah, so that's like that's the gist of it. Um, why is it spelled two different ways? Because it's spelled two different ways. That's that's really all. Um, oh, and and the thing is, a lot of uh, like with the shopping centres, there are a lot of um, you know theater companies and theater venues that use the old re spelling, um, and they. <laughs> Um, and so you, you get a mix. Some places spell it E-R, some R-E. Um, and then there are, you know, places like the New York Times who have decided it will always be R-E. Like, even if they're talking about a theater company who uses E-R, they will change it. They will go out of their way to change it, um, to make it that way which I think is just absurd. It's like, you know, um, them talking about a person named John, J-O-N, but deciding we will only spell it J-O-H and you now have an H in your name. Like, what is that? Who cares? Just just let it be what it is. All right, that's, <laughs> that's all for me this week. Yeah, I think I, think I got to cut myself off there. Um, yeah, let me know. Even if you don't have any questions, just like let me know what you think of this so far. Um, and, you know, maybe at some point I'll open this up to some social media kind of platform. Um, but yeah, send me an email. Let me know what you think of it. Um, also, feel free to leave a review. Uh, please go ahead and, you know, click that little plus symbol or whatever thing um helps you follow this um so you get the updates um you know when the next episode drops and all that good stuff um but yeah i'm i'm curious uh to hear your feedback um looking forward to it uh and yeah above all just share let people know um yeah tell them to give it a go All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening and look forward to talking at you more soon. Bye bye.